Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi there, I'm Georgie Ainsley, and every week I talk to someone who is a performance person. They could be an athlete from the world of entertainment, business, or politics. They could even be an astronaut. The key link is, of course, that they all know how to perform at the top level, and they can teach us all a thing or two about how to do that in our own lives at whatever it is that we do. Performance People is available wherever you get your podcasts, or of course, you can watch us on YouTube, where you can also subscribe, and please do. This week, I'm talking to Chris Hadfield. I told you that we had astronauts on. Chris is one of the most accomplished astronauts in the world. He's the veteran of three space flights and crewed the US space shuttle twice, helped build space station Mir and conducted two spacewalks and served as a commander at the International Space Station. He was also NASA's director of operations in Russia. His zero-gravity version of David Bowie's Space Oddity has more than 50 million views and his TED Talk on fear over 10 million. He's also a best-selling author and has a new book out now, The Defector, available in hardbacks, ebook, and audio, which draws on his time as a top test and fighter pilot. I was flying at 10,000 feet with a friend, felt it like pushing on my leg, and I looked down and it was a snake. Give yourself somehow the permission to succeed 10 times every day and, and notice the little successes. It, it, during one of my simulations for spaceflight, um, it was one where I died as commander of the spaceship. And I thought this would be a great simulation for my wife to attend. Chris, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so much for um, taking the time. I wanted to start by asking uh, you, taking you way, way, way back. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Those uh, forever to be remembered words from Neil Armstrong, you know, on the 20th of July, 1969. Where were you when they were uttered? I was uh, sitting on the back of a sofa uh, with my brother, Dave. And we were in a, uh, my older brother, Dave, he's two years older than I am. We were in a crowded living room full of people because where I was in Canada, 
uh, there weren't very many televisions. And so we'd actually gone over to a neighbor's place because they had the only television within walking distance. And uh, that's where I was physically. Mentally, I was on the moon with those guys. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been reading science fiction stuff. I, w- I was about to turn 10 years old, been watching Star Trek and and I had been following the space race with Apollo 8 around the moon and then Apollo 10 uh, going to the moon, but not quite landing. And this whole reality of Apollo 11 actually occurring was just uh, surreal and amazing. And uh, and really that that night, the influence of that uh, shaped my decision making for the rest of my life still still affects me today. An amazing human event. It's amazing that, isn't it? Because you do look back, each of us look back at events that have taken place in our lives. And and sometimes we can pinpoint a moment. Sometimes we can actually put it down to a day or a moment in time where we say that affected everything that came after. And you, you can do that with that event, can you? I, I've also uh, spoken with a lot of uh, high-performing athletes, Olympians and such. It's and And sometimes in other professions, it's interesting... Um, things that happened when they were 10 years old really imprinted something very important in their own uh, choices from then on. Uh, and so if if you were part of something or you were inspired by something when the world was becoming real to you at around 10, I think that also, uh, not not just the significance of this event for uh, for a lot of people, you know, it was the most viewed television event in history at the time, like a third of everybody on earth was watching. But um, but at ten years old is is a really formative uh, age, and, and for me, uh, it definitely uh, I don't know that that ten year old chose what I was going to be when I grew up. When you look back at all the things that you have done subsequently, since you were that ten year old boy, and you look back at everything that you've done, you've been a test pilot, a fighter pilot, an astronaut. You're writing books. Your book out now is a bestseller, The Defector. All the things that you've done, all the places you've been to, emotionally, which stirs you the most? Which do you most still connect with, and why? Yeah, I've been lucky. You 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 ran a little short list of some of the publicly known um, uh, significant events of my life. Uh, I was in the delivery room um, to help my wife during the birth of all three of our children. Uh, and that, you know, I grew up on a farm. I, if I was familiar with, um, you know, birth and, and, and such, but to, to create life with somebody else and then to be there at the moment as that life, you know, comes into the world and takes its first breath, um, is, I don't know if it's the most significant thing I've ever done, but, uh, it impacted me very significantly to, you know, my wife was doing all the work, but I was there <laughs> trying to help her out. And, and, um, I think that would rate as, as very highly amongst all the, all the places I've been and things that I've ever been part of. And as a parent, I mean, when you move forward as a parent, I'm the mum of two young children, a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. Your attitude to risk, I feel, really, really changes. Your attitude to what you fear in the world really, really changes. Did that change for you? I mean, you're doing one of the most dangerous things that you could possibly ever imagine to do on the planet. Um, you know, how, how did that change you as a person moving forward? 
Initially, it didn't because I was at the time I was a fighter pilot and it's almost like a separate world uh, to take one of the most high performance machines that's ever been built. At the time I was flying F-18s, you know, the same one that um, that starred in uh, Top Gun Maverick. And uh, and it's a very competitive environment and you have to push yourself to the limit all the time just to make the airplane perform. And, and I would uh, take that airplane right to the edge of the envelope on a regular basis. But when our my wife was pregnant with our third child, uh, I had gotten the airplane up very high, up to 63,000 feet and because because uh, um, I could. And, and my wife, you know, she liked what I was up to and she's proud of what I was doing. But she said, you know, we have two and a half children, a third to be born soon. Just... <laughs> How high are you planning to go exactly? And chiding me, but also reminding me of the fact that uh, perhaps there should be some sort of bounds on the unnecessary risks. But I, I am not a thrill seeker at all. I, I don't like adrenaline in my veins. I, if I'm going to take a risk, I want it to be serving a purpose. Uh, and And so to help defend my country, to help figure out how an airplane can fly to the limits of its ability, and to help explore the universe. To me, those are things worth taking a risk for. But uh, there's a lot of things that I would just X off my list as, yeah, it might be transient fun, but I'm never going to do that thing because it doesn't serve an important enough purpose uh, for me to to risk my life and, and therefore the support and love of uh, you know taking care of my family. That's a really fascinating way of sort of justifying it, isn't it? Because that is, it, to most people, it's probably one of the most risky things that you can do, what, what you are doing. I mean, effectively, especially when you're going into space, I mean, you've got two enormous rockets underneath you propelling you into, into that situation. Um, so like you're... Five rockets. I apologize. I underplayed it significantly. But in terms of, in terms of that, I mean, is it because it's sort of a, like you say, the mission is such a, of such importance that it justifies, it justifies it to its ends. But is it also the fact that it's a very calculated risk? You're a very intelligent group of people putting everything together for a mission like that. This is not just on a wing and a prayer. It's, it's, it's incredibly well thought through and, and exercised as such. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to judge what other people want to risk in their own lives. But for example, I would never bungee jump because to me, it serves zero purpose. And you're not involved at all in the inspection of the bungee or how the knots were tied or or any sort of the safety involved. You have no idea the qualifications of the person that's helping you and hooking up your harness. And 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 it doesn't accomplish anything except momentarily uh, entertain you, I guess, or stimulate your nerve endings. And and so to me, that's, I mean, I don't mind if someone else wants to bungee jump, but it requires no skill either. A bag of potatoes can bungee jump just as well <laughs> as I can. So why would I risk my life for something that requires no skill that I don't have any insight into and that serves no purpose that that's important to me. I, I just wouldn't do it. Um, but I make judgments. I mean, everything worth doing in life has risk. Everything. 
And, and so each of us has to make a personal judgment. Okay. This for my personal motivations and reasons, this is a risk that, that I am willing to take. But as soon as you decide, okay, I'm going to take this risk. Then in my mind, your whole job changes. Your job is not to, you know, cross your fingers and leap off the bridge and hope everybody else did their job right. The moment you decide to consciously take that risk, then your job is to learn everything there is that you can about it and to modify it and improve the process to the best of your ability. So that when the moment comes that you're going to execute that risk, you not only have the greatest chance of success, but you also have the greatest chance of defeating the risk itself. And I apply that not just to flying rocket ships in my life, but kind of to everything, you know, writing a novel or or uh, or or any of the day-to-day activities uh, i think that philosophy uh, has one that has served me well as a downhill ski racer and a f- combat fighter pilot and and uh, a spacewalking astronaut you talk you talk in your ted talk about fear a lot um which has had you know well over 10 million views now and and is is a really really popular ted talk and i found it fascinating as well because you talk about how you have to learn how to turn fear into motivation just explain a little bit more about that and for people that struggle in overcoming fear in their everyday lives how do you best do that well um the reason i put that ted talk together i think is that a lot of people think uh, fear and danger are the same thing. Mm. You know, we use it in the vernacular. People say all the time, oh, uh, a rocket launch, that must be scary. And or that's a scary thing, you know, but things aren't scary. Just sometimes some people are scared and and, and recognizing that just because something is dangerous doesn't mean by definition that you have to be afraid that you have to feel fear. And, you know, a simple example, uh, some skill you've learned, like riding a bicycle at a young age, there is danger in riding a bicycle. One of my kids fell and broke his front teeth off, you know, because it's dangerous riding a bike. You're going to go fast and, and you hit a pothole or somebody bumps into you. So we know that riding a bicycle is dangerous. But most people wouldn't say riding a bicycle is scary. They forget that when they were a little six-year-old or whatever learning, right, it was it was scary then because they didn't know how to do it yet. But somebody uh, showed them they, they wanted to do it because they could see other people riding bikes. So they had the motivation. Someone helped teach them. One of their parents maybe helped hold the back of the seat. They were wobbly at first, and then they got better at and then they got better and better until finally they could competently and effortlessly ride a bike and they were away and they got the wind in their hair and suddenly they're a bike rider and the bike didn't change. The danger didn't change at all. The only thing that changed was the skill set of the kid, the skill set of the person. The greatest uh, antidote for fear is competence. And, And so whenever I feel fear, I kind of look at it like I'm a six-year-old and I've never ridden a bike before. It's like, why, why do I feel those palpitations? You know, why am I leery of this thing? It's probably because I don't know how to do it yet, or I haven't asked someone, or I haven't practiced or simulated or done it under safe circumstances enough that when it, the moment comes, I have a reasonable chance of succeeding. So it, it applies to everything in life. 
and, and I think it's really important to decide what you think is worth taking a risk on and then treat it just like you treated learning to ride a bike so that you can master it under safe circumstances. And then you can be a bike rider for the rest of your life. When were you last fearful? Uh, I don't remember the last time I was fearful. Um, sometimes I'm like super focused and, uh, and like I've done the preparation and there's a lot of variables, but I recognize that this is going to demand a lot of me. And so I've gotten myself ready and now I have to really pay attention here and and execute all those things that that I've been preparing and training and thinking about. I bought a little airplane recently, and uh, for the first time, I was flying it uh, a thousand miles, taking it across the border from Canada into America, and all sorts of things that you can't completely control. I also had two dogs and a cat with me, just like the little <laughs> Noah's Ark. So like this, the complexity of, of managing a complex airplane and all of the regulations and, and the distraction of, you know, trying to transport my three pets and, and all of those things. And uh, it, there's more to it maybe than meets the eye. And I could have just like sort of, you know, made it up as I went and I might've got away with it. But I, I did a lot of study and work in advance and practiced and did build up and then did this thousand mile flight. And I'm someone who's flown, I don't know, a hundred different types of airplanes and flown around the world 2,600 times. But I recognize that even though this resembled it, it was different and, and it was going to tax me in new ways. And so on the day of that flight, I, I built myself up to skills and uh, sort of a sharpness and a readiness. And I really paid attention the whole day. And when we successfully landed at the end and we were all there and we'd accomplished everything we were supposed to, and I was, you know, tired after the day's effort, but it was also, uh, a day that could have been a disaster and, and could have been something fear, fear mongering. But, but instead it was one of those things that required me to elevate myself. And I would much rather be ready and at my best on top of my game rather than just hoping that enough adrenaline flows into my veins that I can somehow overcome the complexity of what I'm facing. So, yeah, I, I try not to back myself into the corner where all I've got going for me is fear. I can't let that just slide. The fact that you had a couple of dogs and a cat on a plane journey. <laughs> A thousand mile plane jet. What was that all about? Where were you? Get, what were you doing with animals on board? <laughs> um, my wife and I have been together since high school, and uh, so forty coming up on forty seven years together. And um, she she's doing her fifth university degree. She's had multiple. Every ten years, she gets a new kind of a new profession. And and so she's wow. currently doing a, a master's degree, this time in fine arts and design and ceramics. And and she got, uh, it's at a school that it, it's in a whole new location, University of South Florida. So uh, she had to leave early and drive down there and bring all her stuff. And she's already been in school. And this was now me uh, a month or two <laughs> later, the kids. collecting the rest of the stuff. Yeah, bringing <laughs> the kids, loading the airplane and off I went. And, and so... Um, so yeah, I was I was like this airborne Noah's Ark on the way down there. Uh, but but 
it, even though one of the dogs is quite elderly, uh, I was very happy that it was a successful transport. Weren't you once up on a, in a plane somewhere and a snake was on board and you had to throw it out the top? I was flying at 10,000 feet with a friend, uh, a childhood friend. He, he's a firefighter by profession. And uh, I was flying along. And it was across the Florida panhandle. So, you know, Florida's got that long peninsula and then the skinny part along in the north part of Gulf of Mexico. And there's the main east-west highway in the United States is I-10, Interstate 10. So I'm basically flying along I-10 up at 10,000 feet, two miles up. And I felt my, uh, I was wearing a headset and I, and the cord is down by my leg. And I felt the cord from my headset brush against, I was wearing short pants, felt it brush against my leg. So I sort of moved the cord out of the way. Then I felt it brush against my leg again, moved the cord out of the way. I felt it like pushing on my leg. And I looked down and it was a snake. <laughs> at two miles up in the car. I'm like, wah! And, and you know, not what you expect. And it's like, that's what you, that's what you call a variable. <laughs> yeah. That and is the ultimate buddy, variable. Um, my buddy and I had grown up with snakes. We we have cottages near each other on an island. And he had the little clipboard that had all the information of the airplane. So he pinned the snake's head against the ground, like the approved technique. Uh, so the snake was writhing, but its head was stopped. Then he reached down and, you know, grabbed the snake just behind its head. And now he's got this snake whipping around his arm and we're up. At, what do you do next? Well, there's in case if you have a fire or smoke in one of these little airplanes, there's this little window you can pop open next to you. It makes a real racket because then, you know, the wind's going by at nearly 200 miles an hour. But at least it's immediate exit to the world. And we figured uh, the only better place for this snake to be would be out somewhere and not in the cockpit. <laughs> so my buddy Russ uh, reaches over and sticks his hand through and then he's like scraping the snake off his arm and then boop, out it goes out the window, boop, close the door again. And then the two of us are like, did that just happen? You know, how it only took 30 seconds. And then I pictured this poor little snake. Well, you know, I don't know, it was a snake, biggest snake I'd ever seen while flying an airplane, but it wasn't a boa constrictor. Anyway, uh, I could picture the snake falling two miles and then some poor guy driving his convertible on I-10, having a semi-frozen <laughs> snake plummet into the car next to him. But anyway... Um, I I hope that snake forgives me, but uh, I think it probably when I was loading the airplane and I had my you know my duffel bag and stuff, I think it probably slithered into my duffel bag, and then when I loaded in the plane, I didn't notice, and then it was just you know being a snake and coming out to see what was going on. But uh, yeah, that that got my attention. But again, you're able to, I mean, that is an the ultimate variable, but you're, you're able to deal with the unpredictable. I think that's the one thing. See, sport is where Ben and I come from. That's our background. That's what, you know, that's, that's where we live and breathe. And one of the things we love about sport is the unpredictability of it. The fact that you don't know what might happen next and you don't know the outcome. It cannot be foreseen. Um, when you're prepping, when you're planning for any of the things that you've done previously in your life, um, obviously there is going to be a, a degree of unpredictability attached to that. How do you best prepare for that? I mean, it may not be a snake on a plane, but it may be uh, how you journey to space and, and what happens when you get there. I mean, how do you how do you plan for those eventualities? Well, I think it is like sport um, in that. You have a clear objective of what success is going to look like, you know, whether it's uh, 
winning in a sailboat race or, or, or any sport at all. I mean, and I, I agree with you, sport, the whole beauty of it is the unpredictability and you have to actually play the match to find out who, who is the best. Um, but if you truly want to win, then uh, you can't just enter into the competition and hope you're going to do okay. You visualize what success looks like, and then you start practicing. You start changing your own body. You know, you need to build up the musculature and strength and endurance. And then you simulate whatever it is the competition you're going to be in. You you do partials of it or you do drills or you you practice with other people or you if you're going to run a marathon, you run all the subsets of a marathon and work your way up. And space flight and being a fighter pilot and a test pilot, it's the same thing. You have a clear goal in mind, but you don't have all the skills yet. And you need to then break it into individual skills and pieces that you have to develop. And then you start integrating them together. And you try and if you truly want to get ready, then you need to have as realistic a simulation as you possibly can. So that when the actual game or the actual event is happening, it feels familiar. And and you have all sorts of depth of reaction to things going wrong because things are going to go wrong. And in your simulation, you should have practiced an endless litany of failures and mistakes and and things that that might uh, no longer be working so that you learn and develop all of the skill set to work around them. And so I was an astronaut for 21 years. I was in space for six months. So that means for 20 and a half years. I was getting ready for those six months in space. And even though myriad things went wrong, uh, none of them were insurmountable. None of them killed us. We managed to prevail over all of them and return uh, essentially 100% successful from all three space missions. But it wasn't because of luck. Uh, it, it was because of a clear sense of purpose and then an absolutely relentless necessity to, to get better and better at all of the things, all of the skills that we needed. In that 21 years and the six months as well that, that's incorporated in that, what was the best bit? I know that seems like a really basic question, but what was the bit that sort of you, you look back on and you think, oh, that was just great. I loved every minute of that moment. All what 21 made it the most years. worthwhile? I mean, I, it, it, yeah, if, if I was counting on a bit, on one best bit to have justified 21 years of work, I would have driven myself mad, you know? I, um, <laughs> and so I'm the type of person who uh, deliberately loves every single thing that I'm doing because you, there's, there are people I meet who seem to choose to hate their own lives. Like I, I'm, Oh, I, I hate this. I don't want to do this. I hate doing these things. What an awful thing to do to yourself. I mean, there is pain and pleasure in everything. There is regret and joy in everything. And I mean, if I got to go out and shovel the snow in the driveway, I could make that the worst day of my life or I could make it a, a whole bunch of fun. Totally up to me. It's psychological. I mean, and so um, in my 21 years as an astronaut, there was a tremendous amount of drudgery. Uh, of repetition. Uh, I mean, I, on my third flight, I was the pilot of a Russian rocket ship and Russian spaceship. So I had to learn to speak Russian 
And then I had to learn orbital mechanics and control theory and everything. And then, and then learn to fly and work with Russian mission control and operate the spaceship in Russian. And studying Russian for 20 years, a lot of people would not think that's fun, you know, but, but it's totally individual as to how you determine whether you're getting pleasure or, or, uh, or boredom out of things. And, you know, there, there are no boring things. There are just boring people. And, and I try not to be a boring person. And, and so I could choose a hundred different things that were pinnacles of joy. You know, the, on my first space launch on space shuttle Atlantis after eight and a half minutes, when those big engines shut off and we were suddenly magically transformed and weightless. And now I was an astronaut and no one could ever take this away. This was a threshold that is so rare and so hard to accomplish. And I was there and part of the crew that made this happen or opening the hatch and, and pulling myself out on my very first spacewalk. And, and uh, during that spacewalk, going through the aurora of the world and having the greens and reds of the southern lights pouring around me and pouring around the spaceship. Uh, or being on the International Space Station and having a major catastrophic emergency and having to pull every skill my crew had and working with the ground and do an emergency spacewalk to go out and save the world's spaceship and, and triumphantly accomplishing all those things. Those are all, you know, easily identifiable pinnacles. But if you're counting on rare moments in your life to justify everything else, you're going to be miserable. And, and instead, I, I would I would very much counsel anybody else because it's it's what I've counseled myself my whole life, and that is uh, find great moments of joy as often as you possibly can. Give yourself somehow the permission to succeed ten times every day, and, and notice the little successes and feel like a winner. Uh, and it doesn't have to matter to anybody else. They don't care what you're doing. So just allow yourself that privilege and life becomes so much more calming and, and joy-filled and triumphant and uh, gives you a secret smile for, for every single day. And so, yeah, I've had some high moments, but but to me, every single day has high moments, high moments in it. Here's the thing. You can't really have the success without a few failures either. And my goodness, do they teach oh. you a thing or two? I was, I was saying to my husband the other day, it drives me mad. Actually, the children's education system in this country is all about getting everything right. <laughs> it's like, if you can't get things wrong when you're seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, when can you get things wrong? What has failure taught you as well? I mean, I know when we're talking about what you do, we're talking about a life and death situation if things do go badly wrong. But there are little journeys and little lessons along the way with, with failure. What, what, is, what has that taught you more than anything? Probably not to do it too often. <laughs> well, no, I mean, uh, things always go wrong. You can absolutely count on things going wrong. That's, that's just how things go. And some of the, the majority of the failures will be minor, but occasionally there's one that has enormous consequence. And when you see the possibility of uh, enormous consequence and high probability, then uh, that's the thing you've really got to focus on. And so part of failure 
is learning to anticipate the early signs of it so that you can then do the work in advance and not just have to fight a rearguard action and clean up afterwards. Um, and I think about that consciously all the time. Like, I don't know if you've done this recently, Georgie, but what are the 10 greatest threats to your life right now or the things that you want to do? And why wouldn't you, you know, sit down and go, what are the, to, to whatever, to just to my life or to me feeling successful in life or whatever is valuable to you? What are the 10 greatest threats? And be realistic about it. And what am I doing about those things in advance? Or am I just sort of whistling past the graveyard and rubbing my rabbit's foot and hoping, well, hope hope those things don't happen because I really have no clue what I'm going to do when they do happen. I I don't want to um, not be ready for my own life, you know, and 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 if I can look at, I don't know, something mundane and predictable, my, my parents are elderly. Uh, they're 89 and 87. And I love my parents and I try and support them and, and spend time with them where I can. But they're getting close to the end of life. They will die sometime relatively soon. It's just a fact. So it's going to be emotionally difficult. I have two brothers and two sisters, but it's a great thing to simulate and just say, okay, what are we going to do when whatever, one of our parents dies? What, what are we all going to do? Like, Who's going to do what? And and does everybody know what their role might be and where we should go? And, and does anybody know the details? Like where is their will and what did they want done with their body and all the rest of that stuff? And what, trying to analyze it when you have time, when there's no pressure, when everybody's not upset, when someone's not, you know, a thousand miles away, actually having the conversation and maybe even simulating it saying okay let's just pretend that whatever my dad just passed away now who's who's going to deal with what who's going to call who who's going to take it over and then you sure don't want the bad thing to happen but it actually is really helpful everybody's a lot calmer everybody's mm -hmm. a lot um readier it, during one of my simulations for space flight, um, it was one where I died as commander of the spaceship. And it was a big simulation with the management teams and the international organizations. And I thought this would be a great simulation for my wife to attend. And normally they don't have spouses come in to, to astronaut simulations, but uh, she came to it. Her name's Helena. And she had had plans for what to do while I was in space for half a year. But when she actually saw what the sequence of events was going to be like and and the media showing up at the front door of the house and social media and phone calls and how was she going to communicate with our kids and and how and she realized okay i need to actually have uh, a better plan and i need to be in a different place than i thought in case this relatively high probability event actually happens i need to be ready for it and and to me i think that's one of the best ways to deal with failure is to recognize the inevitability of it and then to think and learn about the details of it and then to try and simulate and get ready for it so that when it does happen, you have a much higher probability of reacting well and, and, and not having it to be devastating to you. Um, 
And hopefully, along by, with that philosophy, along the way, you built up enough skill set so that one day on the space station, when it starts spewing liquid ammonia out to space and it's not in any of your checklists, you have the collective experience to be able to understand how best to deal with that thing. And it, that philosophy, to me, applies to everything. That makes a lot of sense. Um, this is the Performance People podcast. So... What I would love from you, and I'm sure there are many different versions of this, but perhaps we could condense it to one. What is the best thing, the best piece of advice that you could give people that are looking for better 24-7 performance in their everyday lives? I don't know how you relate an astronaut to space and space to the everyday life, but perhaps it's easier than I assume. And, and what would be the one thing that people could do better in their lives every day to give themselves that best performance? Um, I think the first step is to uh, uh, identify or define what victory looks like for you. What is it that I'm actually trying to accomplish? If better performance is relative to what and for what aim, you know, and and so give yourself a clear understanding of uh, what it is that that you're trying that your end goal is. And you don't just have one of those. You've got several. But make sure those are clear because those are the are the bits of, of sticky uh, stick up notes in the distance that are actually guiding what it is that you're going to do today. And then once you've got those guideposts of 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 what it is you're trying to accomplish, then um, make the little decisions uh, on a regular basis that help uh, herd your life along in those directions. And, but without those end goals, then how do you keep motivated in anything? You know, Oh, I want to be in better shape for what? Like, but without a goal, then the process will eventually derail itself. But when you've got a goal in mind, Hey, I'm, I'm going to run a marathon or I, I, I'm going to live to be a hundred years old, or, or I'm going to fly a spaceship. Then Okay, this is why I'm keeping my body in shape. And this is the measure of how in shape I need my body to be. And so you've got those long-term goals, but then take responsibility for your small decisions in life. And, and I, I think it's really vital, Georgie, in that it's easy like to join a health club. Joining a health club does not make you fitter. In fact, it's sort of pretending to get fitter, right? Um, it's like buying flashy new trainers or running shoes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a step in the right direction. But what you actually need to do is make the small decisions that move you towards the things that are important to you. And we tend to forgive ourselves, absolve ourselves of the import of our small decisions. But actually, they're, they're the only decisions you ever have. The big stuff, the, the big goals, those are just sort of theoretical. But what's actually going to make a difference in your life is taking responsibility for each of the small decisions. And your life is not what you set out to do. It's not what you told people you're going to do. Your life is the strung together little sequence of the small decisions that you make. What am I going to do in the next 10 minutes? What am I going to do this afternoon? What book am I going to read? What food am I actually going to eat? What time am I going to go to bed? What am I, you know, how am I going to interact with other people? And, and so 
and, and you know, you need to be kind to yourself and you need to forgive yourself. But to me, that combination of having clear, exciting, personal goals in life, and then deliberately on a on a constant iterative basis, think about the responsibility of your small decision-making and so that it is consciously moving you in the direction that you want to go. And that leads to a deliberately successful performance like nothing else that I know. It's funny, actually, just having this conversation is making me feel so much more accountable to my own self in that I have also just recently purchased a new pair of flashy trainers and joined a health club, um, and neither of which has actually led to me becoming super fit yet. <laughs> so I know what I need to do next. Thank you so much, Chris, for speaking to us. I really appreciate it. Georgie, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and chat with you as well. Thank you for making the time. You too. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.